Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. In this audio, I am covering 1 Timothy 6, verse 11 through 21, the end of the chapter, the end of the book of 1 Timothy. Our context is this, in the first 10 verses of chapter 6, Paul has exhorted Timothy against the love of money, and he has warned Timothy about the false teachers, the Gnostic Jewish legalistic teachers that are have been bedeviling the churches in Ephesus. We start now in chapter 6, verses 11, and go through 12. But you, man of God, Paul, this is Paul talking to Timothy, but you, man of God, run from these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight for the faith. Take hold of eternal life that you were called to and have made a good confession about in the presence of many witnesses. Paul calls Timothy a man of God. Now, that is a very honorable title. It's an honorific title taken from the Old Testament. And of course, Paul was steeped in the Old Testament. And he calls Timothy a man of God. He's associating with people, associating Timothy with people like Moses, Elijah, Elisha, Samuel, and David, all of whom were called man of God. Here's some examples about man of God. Let's take 2 Timothy 3:16 and 17. All Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And there Paul may be referring to a generic man of God. Anybody that follows God will need the Scripture. Or he could be referring to Timothy himself. You, man of God, Timothy, need the Scripture. Second Kings one nine. So King Ahaziah sent a captain of fifty with his fifty men to Elijah. When the captain went up to him, he was sitting on top of the hill. He announced, "Man of God, the king declares, come down." So the messenger, the captain, calls Elijah, "Man of God," as a title. Deuteronomy thirty three one. This is the blessing that Moses, the man of God, gave the Israelites before his death. So if you want to have a good title for somebody, call them man of God. Run from these things. Well, what things? Well, that would be, well, there's several options. It could be the, the things that were mentioned in the previous two verses, 9 and 10, according to Jameson Fawcett and Brown. Run from the love of money and its evil results. Or it could be, you could go back a little bit further in chapter 6, verses 3 through 5 of 1 Timothy, run from false doctrine. Remember, Paul told Timothy these false teachers had a sick interest in disputes in verse 4. So run from false doctrine, run from Jewish legalism, run from Gnosticism, run from the love of money. The opposite of that is righteousness. Paul says to Timothy, pursue it, pursue righteousness. Now, righteousness, of course, can have two meanings. We always need to distinguish those two meanings. It can be imputed righteousness or declared righteousness or legal righteousness. In other words, God declares me righteous before Jesus declares me. God declares me righteous before his throne. I'm no longer innocent. I'm no longer guilty. I'm innocent before him in his courtroom. We get that when we get born again. And obviously, Timothy's already had that. So is, is to pursue righteousness, how do you pursue something you've already got? So that's not the sense that righteousness is used here. It's it refers to holy living as the commentator Ellison affirms. Holy living, in other words, practical living, sanctification, practical sanctification, progressive sanctification. Pursue that kind of righteousness. It's something that doesn't happen all at once, like declared righteousness or legal righteousness or imputed righteousness, which occurs all at once. But as far as the righteousness that comes from our sanctification, that's a progressive thing. We, we get better and better at it, if you will, if I can put it that way. Pursue godliness, pursue faith, love, and endurance. All that stuff is stuff that 
all those spiritual fruits there that are mentioned are things that need to be developed. They grow. They don't just happen. Poof! They don't appear like as a result of a magician's wand. We know what faith is, the essence of things not seen. We know what love is. Love is doing. It is not feeling, but doing for others, even at the expense of, to the expense of ourselves. Endurance, the King James has patience. In other words, you put up with stuff and keep moving. And gentleness. Now, gentleness is, uh, is a characteristic that is often not enjoined of spiritual leaders, because usually spiritual leaders have to be tough. Remember, that's gentle toward the flock. It's not gentle toward heretics. Paul was anything but gentle toward heretics, and Jesus was anything but gentle toward the Pharisees and Sadducees. They were brutally rough, but this is talking about dealing with Christians. Unfortunately, there are too many Christians that got it exactly backwards. They sit and they tolerate heretics while they browbeat the flock and tell them, be good, be right, be holy. That's not the way it ought to be. Verse 12, Paul says, fight the good fight for the faith. Fight. The Christian lives his life in a war zone from the day he's born to the day he dies. I used to think when I was a kid, I said, man, things are so tough. I had, a, you know, divorced parents and divorce coming up soon and empty, shallow, middle-class, hollow existence. Vietnam War, race riots in the cities, the world's coming to an end. Hal Lindsey and the late great planet Earth saying, see, there the world's coming to an end. I mean, I had a, everything was wrong. And I used to think back then, boy, if I could just have some peace, if I could just get older where I have enough money, have a good job, have a wife, have some kids, have a picket fence, have an Irish setter, have a Siamese cat curled up in the sunshine in the window. If I could have all that and just have some peace, I wouldn't have to fight anymore. I wouldn't have to struggle for existence. Well, guess what? That ain't the way it is. You're going to be fighting from the day you were born when that Doctor, when they used to slap you on your rear end, I don't think they do that anymore, but from the day you fight for your first breath to the day you die, you're going to be fighting. Because this world is a war zone. The world, the flesh, and the devil will always raise their ugly heads up to you, and you've got to fight. You cannot quit. You cannot put it on autopilot. You cannot say, the other day I had a good friend of mine who's my age, I'm 68, and he, some He's working for a ministry, and some good things happen, and so it took some pressure off of him. And he said, you know, you know, Dan, at our age, we ought not to be having pressure. And I started laughing. I said, being 68 is supposed to relieve me of having pressure? I don't think that's the way it works. <laughs> Paul the Apostle, he was in his early 60s when he was executed, and he was under pressure all the way to the end. I'm talking about serious pressure pressure where he had to fight for his life and he just rejoiced and kept right on trucking so anyway that's the christian condition is a condition of having to war having to battle having to fight now paul says to timothy take hold of eternal life now you might say that means grab it for the first time well that means timothy would have to not be saved and then he would be paul would be saying get saved timothy well of course that's not true because timothy's already saved so what does it mean to take hold of eternal life well, it's a it's an it's an, a a sports metaphor. It's the metaphor of a winning athlete taking hold of his crown, as Ellison Clark and Jameson Fawcett and Brown, all three commentators say. Can't refer to getting saved because Timothy's already saved, but it means take hold of your crown, and your crown, of course, is that crown of life that you're going to get when you finish running your race and you go to heaven. And Jesus says, "Here's your crown, buddy. Well done, my good and faithful servant." Take hold of eternal life that you were called to. 
And of course, we wouldn't be on this Christian walk if Jesus hadn't called us to start with. He had to personally say, Dan, try to follow me. Otherwise, I wouldn't have come. That you were called to and have made a good confession about in the presence of many witnesses. The question is, is when did Timothy make that confession? Did he make it at his baptism? Did he make it when he was had laid hands on the presbytery laid hands on him? The body of elders laid hands on him? Or maybe it was just a time when he said Jesus is Lord as a public confession somewhere. We don't really know. Well, let's take the third option first, just a public confession at some unknown place. Early Christians would say Jesus is Lord as a confession. Are you a Christian? Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. I like that. They would do that personally and to themselves and also publicly. Romans 10.9 says this, If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And so apparently that was a confession, a formula, if you will. I hate to say a formula, but it was a, con a, a confessional, a, a, a set group of words, a confession in that Christians would speak when they were saved to prove that they were saved. So that could be that good confession that, Jesus, that, that Timothy made in the presence of many witnesses. That could refer to when he got baptized. Or, as I said, it could refer to when Timothy was appointed to something. And I say to something because remember, Timothy was a pastor of sorts in Ephesus, but he was also an apostle. So sometimes it's hard to distinguish what exactly his gifting was. But we go to 2 Timothy 1.6 and we see that Paul says, Therefore I remind you to keep ablaze the gift of God that is in you through the laying on of my hands. Now that's where Timothy is supposed to, or many people say he's so-called, he's quote-unquote ordained or appointed. And there is another place, which I don't have, where he is, where Paul talks about the laying on of hands on Timothy, which I think refers obviously to his being set aside as an elder, not obviously, but arguing for the context, because the context of 1 Timothy is basically being a, a church leader, and so it makes sense to me that the the gift that Timothy had by the laying on of hands of the presbytery, I don't have the verse in front of me, but it's a couple chapters back, maybe last chapter, chapter before, the laying hand of the presbytery, laying on of hands of the presbytery, that refers to him being recognized as an elder. But now in 2 Timothy 1, 7, Excuse me, Second Timothy 1, 6, we read this. Therefore, I remind you to keep ablaze the gift of God that is in you through the laying on of my hands. Now, that gift of God is, doesn't have a, the context around it. It doesn't refer to a gift of being an elder. The next verse, Second Timothy 1, 7, says, For God has not given us a spirit of fearfulness, but one of power, love, and sound judgment. Now, that sounds like baptism of the Holy Spirit, like many of the commentators say rather than ordination. So I'm not sure exactly what it's talking about here, but if one of those laying on of hands before the presbytery is talking about pastoral concerns, then it would make sense that Timothy at that time confessed before all those who were laying hands on him says, yes, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. But at any rate, it's obvious that shy Timothy is often called, is often said to be shy. Well, he might have been shy, but he made a good confession in the presence of many witnesses. We go to 1 Timothy 6, verses 13 and 14. In the presence of God, who gives life to all, and of Christ Jesus, who gave a good confession before Pontius Pilate, I charge you to keep the command without fault or failure until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Paul is talking about another confession. Timothy made a good confession. Now, Jesus made a good confession before Pontius Pilate. A confession is to give witness to. Jesus is said to be a faithful witness in Revelation 1.5. We read this from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, 
Revelation 3.14, write to the angel of the church in Laodicea, the amen, the faithful and true witness. So Jesus was faithful to witness, faithful to testify, faithful to confess that he was the Son of God and in him was eternal life and so forth. And when Jesus was before Pontius Pilate, who are you? I am the, are you the Christ? You say that I am. Or actually, that's King James. It's yes, I am is modern translation. Who are you? Are you the, are you the Messiah? Yes, I am. He made a good confession before Pilate. Ellison and Gill say that confession before Pilate might be translated in a different way in the time of Pilate so that his confession would be his doctrine and miracles throughout his ministry. I think that is a off-the-wall outlying interpretation in my humble opinion. I looked up the Greek word, it's epi, and I can't see how it ever means that. So, of course, I'm not a Greek scholar, so maybe they know something I don't. But I think we just take it here that when he was before Christ, when he said, I am, are you the Messiah? I am. That was a good confession. And Paul says, Timothy, I charge you to keep the command. Charge you? That's serious business. He said the same thing in the previous chapter, 1 Timothy 5.21. I solemnly charge you before God in Christ Jesus and the elect angels to observe these things without prejudice, doing nothing out of favoritism. Paul is not just writing a chatty letter. He is writing a solemn official letter to his right-hand man in Ephesus, and he knows that letter is going to be circulated so he's very serious about what he tells timothy i charge you to keep the command without fault or failure keep what command well it could refer to verses 11 and 12 that we just read verses 11 and 12 said run from these things run from materialism and gnostic legalistic judaistic heresy run from those things pursue righteousness godliness faith love endurance and so forth, fight the good fight, make a good confession. And then he says in verse 13, I charge you to keep that command. All those good things I just told you. Or it could be the whole letter of 1 Timothy, all this stuff I've been telling you, which is basically about false teachers. Keep the command. It could be the whole doctrine of Christ in general. just depends on how specific you want to be with the command. But it means the stuff that Paul has been telling Timothy, whatever it, it refers to it. I don't see why I can't refer to everything. Everything Paul told Timothy, keep it without fault, without failure. And Paul would not have exhorted Timothy to do something unless it was possible for him to do it. I mean, I don't think you ought to be a perfectionist about anything because we're all imperfect. But there is a sense in which you can basically keep godly commands from Jesus and his apostles without screwing up. And I, I, I say that. It's hard for me to say that because it's so easy for me to screw up. But, so, but also in the body of Christ, there's so many people screwing up. I mean, moral failures, horrible failures, doctrinal disasters everywhere. And it's almost embarrassing. So it's so encouraging to see people teaching the truth because you say, wow, that's a breath of fresh air. Keep the command without fault or failure until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that appearing could be 8070 or it could be the end of time. Whenever you see coming or appearing, you always have to ask that question. Here, Ellison Gill, Clark, and Jameson Fawcett and Brown say it's the second coming. A lot of witnesses there. I have a problem with that, though. How can Timothy live long enough to keep the command for 2,000-plus years? Keep the command until Jesus comes. Well, the only answer to that is, is Paul thought that Jesus was going to come a lot sooner, going to come to end history up a lot sooner than he actually a lot sooner than 2,000 plus years. And so Paul was wrong about when Jesus would return in Timothy's lifetime. Well, if he was wrong, what does that say about apostolic inerrancy? 
Well, actually nothing, because inspiration refers to Paul's writings, not his thoughts or his opinions about things. So I don't think we can get him on that. So you could still hold to a futurist opinion, uh, option here that this is Timothy supposed to keep command without until Jesus comes. And Paul thought Jesus was going to come in Timothy's lifetime. I have trouble with that, though, because, you know, gee, Paul had a lot of revelation about things. And I'm just wondering whether Jesus would have let Paul think that Jesus was coming back in Timothy's lifetime. So I tend to hold to the 8070 interpretation of that word appearing right here in this verse. I mean, it could go either way, but that's just my humble opinion. We go now to 1 Timothy 6.15. God will bring this about in his own time. God will bring what about the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is mentioned at the end of verse 14. So in 15, Paul says, God will bring this appearing of Jesus about in his own time. He is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Now, that phrase own time or proper time is used concerning Jesus' first coming in the scriptures, 1 Timothy 2.6, who gave himself, talking about Jesus, a ransom for all, a testimony at the proper time. Titus 1.3, in his own time, he has revealed his message in the proclamation that I was entrusted with by the command of God our Savior. In God's own time. In other words, God's got his time when he's going to do stuff. You can pray all you want about, like I've been praying for revival in America. You can pray about it all you want, but it's going to be in his time when it comes about. If it indeed comes about. All of our prayers have got to be subject to the will of God, of course. And I'm not saying that as a, to throw cold water on the idea that we ought to pray all the time. The scripture constantly says, pray, 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 pray. Jesus is the blessed and only sovereign. He's the king, the king of kings. That means there's a lot of little kings on earth. There's some emperors here, king there, president there, but he's king of them all. He's in charge of them all. And the Lord of lords, there's lots of lords. Lord's like a noble big shot, and he's, he's the bigger shot. He's in charge of them too. Lord of lords, Deuteronomy 10:17. For the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, mighty, and awesome God. Psalm 136.3, give thanks to the Lord of lords. His love is eternal. How about King of Kings, Revelation 17.14? These will make war against the Lamb, but the Lamb will conquer them because he is Lord of lords and King of kings. It's kind of a set expression to give a majestic feel to our God. Our Baba, our Daddy, our Abba. As people so erroneously take that verse, Abba, Father. That's not what it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be Father. Abba is just the Aramaic for the Greek, which is translated Father. It's not. So in it, next time you feel like calling Daddy, calling God Daddy or Papa, think about this phrase here. Of course, that's God. Well, here's Jesus, Lord of Lords and King of Kings. Of course, you're not, let's think of a good phrase for, uh, where is this? Deuteronomy, for the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords. So in Deuteronomy, it's God the Father is called Lord your God and God of gods. And in Revelation, is Jesus is called Lord of lords and King of kings. So you see, Jesus is God and so is God the Father God. They're both gods. Another Trinitarian argument there. Revelation 19:16, and he has a name written on his robe and on his thigh, King of kings and Lord of lords. 1 Timothy 6:16, the only one who has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light, no one has seen or can see him, to him be honor and eternal might. Amen. The only one who has immortality, you say, well, wait a minute, what about angels? What about us? Don't we live forever? 
Well, we live forever going forward, but we don't live forever going backwards. There was a time when we were not. But there never was a time when God was not. He was always in existence. So angels, as well as human beings, souls aren't immortal backwards in time like God is. There's a theological distinction between, distinction between those two kinds of eternity. And unfortunately, I've forgotten what the two words are, but it's a distinction that we ought to hold in mind. So God is the only one who has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light. No one has seen or can see him. Now, this idea of can you see God or not see God has always caused me a lot of problems, as I'm sure it has you too. Because there are so many verses that, verses that talk about seeing God and a lot of other verses that say you can't see God. So I'm going to set up a little paradigm here, if you will, to examine this problem. John Piper's got a good article on it, but he doesn't go into it as deeply, quite as extensively as I've done here. So uh, not to say that, it, that mine's any better than his. I, I could be wrong, of course, but... I think that this is the way you straighten out these verses that apparently contradict. There are some scriptures that say you cannot see God and some scriptures that say you can see God. Now, of the ones that say you cannot see God, some say it's because God is invisible because he's a spirit, not flesh. For example, 1 Timothy 1.17, now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God. So that's why you can't see him because he's a spirit. You can't see a spirit. That's easy enough. Another way that you can't see God is because God is too awesome for mere humans to see. And that would take in our verse here, 1 Timothy 6.16, who alone is immortal and lives an unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see. In other words, you try to look at God and you see such brilliance that it just smokes your eyeballs and you can't see anything anymore. You're blinded by his honor. So you can't see him that way. All right, well, what about the verses that say you can see God? Well, first of all, there are verses that say you can see God in the sense of knowing or understanding. For example, I don't understand this algebra problem. All of a sudden you get the answer, oh, I see now. Well, you don't see anything. It means you understand it. That's see means understand. Matthew 5, 8, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. That means they will understand God. They will know God. That doesn't mean they can see him physically with their eyeballs. Another time that scriptures say that that human beings can see God is when God is incarnate. For example, Genesis 32:30, Jacob then named the place Peniel, for I have seen God face to face, he said, yet my life has been spared. This, of course, was after Jacob had been wrestling with the angel of God, and that was an angel, an angel who had been embodied into somebody physical. And so Jacob was looking at the angel of the Lord, who I'm assuming is Jesus, and he says, I saw him face to face. Well, yeah, you can see Jesus face to face. A lot of people saw Jesus face to face. They were looking at God, but they were looking at the God-man incarnate whose glory had been veiled so that, we, so that they could look at him without getting fried. So that's easy enough, too. And then we have the words see. Sometimes uh, people can see God if they look at indirectly at him by looking at his effects. Or vision of God, for example, or the effects of God, or something God does. You're not looking at God straight, straight on, head on, directly, but you're looking at him indirectly through his effects or, or a vision of him. For example, well, one example is, I saw the Lord, you know, Isaiah 6. He just saw a vision of the Lord, you know, that famous vision of the wheels. So, oh, that was Ezekiel, I'm sorry. But anyway, Isaiah said he, he had seen the Lord. He had seen a vision of the Lord. That's not the same thing as looking at God directly. Here's an example of this, Exodus 33:18 through 20. Then Moses said, please let me see your glory. He, 
Yahweh said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim the name the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So God, Yahweh, tells Moses, I'm going to be gracious to you. I'm going to let you see me. But what is he going to see? I'm going to let my goodness pass in front of you. Verse 20, but he added, you cannot see my face, for humans cannot see me and live. So I think this was when Moses was hidden in a rock and he saw the glory passing, but he didn't look at God directly because it would have killed him. So you can look at God indirectly. Now, I've got a ton of scriptures here, which I guess I can go through if I have time here. And we can see how we can apply that little that little structure, that little framework I just used to see if we can interpret these verses. Genesis 32:30. Well, I've just read that one. Excuse me. Exodus 20:19. You speak to us and we will listen, they said to Joseph. But don't let God speak to us, for we will die. There's an example of you don't look at God because he'll kill you because of his glory. Judges 6, 22-23. When Gideon realized that he was the angel of the Lord, he said, Oh, no, Lord God, I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace to you. Don't be afraid, for you will not die. Said, because it was a common viewpoint back then. If you looked at God straight on, you're going to die. Well, he looked at God straight on, but he was veiled incarnate. The angel of the Lord, I'm assuming that's Jesus. You can look at Jesus. Can't look. You can look at God the Son because he's veiled. Judge 13:22. We're going to die. This is Manoah, Samson's father, said to his wife, because we have seen God. That's the same incident of looking at the angel of the Lord, God incarnate. Isaiah 6, 5. Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips and live among a people of unclean lips. And because my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And again, it was a vision that he'd seen, not God directly. So you can see a vision of God. John 6:46. not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. And that means one who has had a direct knowledge in the direct presence of God. That would be God the Son could do that, but nobody else can. We can look at God indirectly. We can look at God in, in, in his incarnate form, or we can look at God indirectly, look at his effects, even as we see trees blowing in the wind. We can't look at wind because it's invisible, but we can see the effects of the wind. First John 4:12. no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God remains in us, and his love is perfected in us. No one has ever seen God because he's invisible. Matthew 5, 8, the pure in heart are blessed, for they will see God, they will understand God. Hebrews 12:14. pursue peace with everyone in holiness, because, it, because without it, no one will see the Lord. Now, that means to know the Lord. It doesn't mean see him physically. It just means no one will understand or know the Lord. Revelation 22:4. they will see his face and his name will be on their forehead. Well, his refers to Jesus. That's the incarnate God. You can see Jesus that way, see God that way. John 1:18. no one has ever seen God, the one and only son, the one who is at the father's side. He has revealed him. No one's ever seen God because he's invisible. He's a spirit. Colossians 1.15, he is the image of the invisible God. Again, he can't see him because he's a spirit. Hebrews 11.27, by faith he left Egypt behind, not being afraid of the king's anger, for Moses persevered as one who sees him who is invisible. So Moses saw God who was invisible, but what did he do? He saw the effects of God as God passed him by. 1 Corinthians 11.13, for now we see indistinctly as in a mirror, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully as I am fully known. You're going to see God face to face. That doesn't mean you're necessarily going to see God. Well, it doesn't say whether you're seeing God or whether you're seeing the sun. You're going, to, you're, going to see, you're going to know God a lot more directly than you know him now, but you're not going to see him directly in all of his glory because that would take us out. First John 3, 2, dear friends, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet been revealed. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. That, of course, is Jesus. 
looking at the incarnate God. All right, so enough of that. First Timothy 7, 16, 17 through 19. Instruct those who are rich in the present age not to be arrogant. Now Paul's getting back to this rich idea. Apparently these false teachers were big into money. Instruct those who are rich in the present age not to be arrogant or to set their hope on the uncertainty of wealth, but on God who richly provides us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do what is good, to be rich in good works, to be generous, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good reserve for the age to come, so that they may take hold of life that is real. Paul says those who are rich in this present age, don't be arrogant, which of course is a besetting temptation for rich people, as Jameson Fawcett and Brown says. I remember watching the debates of the Republican primaries in the 2016 presidential election, and Donald Trump was running, and the moderator asked, the 17 candidates, or however many candidates were on the stage, just give one characteristic about yourself. So they all went down saying, well, they were hardworking, they were honest, they were loyal, they were true, and so forth. And comes to Donald Trump, and he says, humble. And everybody starts laughing. And, of course, Trump meant it as a joke, and it was a good joke, because he's not exactly known for being humble. And I remember I was on a Zoom conference from some old Christians I hadn't seen in 30 and 40 years. I used to be a deacon in a Baptist church and they got together on Zoom and and the guy that was doing the kind of hosting the conference said, you know, Donald Trump has done a lot for the church and we ought to be thankful, but you know, we need to pray for his humility. <laughs> so, so uh, yeah, it's real easy for rich people to be arrogant. So again, this is a general statement. It's like saying in general, women like to gossip. That's in general, okay? In general, Cretans are liars and lazy beasts that Paul called them. That means in general. It doesn't mean every single rich person is arrogant. It just means there are a lot of people that are rich that are arrogant, and Paul says, instruct these people not to be arrogant. Now, he doesn't tell, tell them to give all their wealth away to avoid sin. If sin was, if if having wealth was a sin, like adultery, Paul would say, get rid of it. But he never says that ever. I mean, he preaches against homosexuality, against adultery, against drunkenness, against carousing. I mean, you know, all these common sins. He never preaches against wealth as a sin. It is not a sin to be rich, folks. But it is a sin to put your hope and put your attention on wealth and to serve God instead of mammon. I'm going to read you a bunch of verses that talk about the, 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 how wealth can drag you into sin. But it's never, it's not a sin in itself. Now, Paul tells Timothy that wealth is uncertain. Don't put your hope, don't let these rich people put their hope on the uncertainty of wealth. There's a Greek God, a minor, no, I'm sorry, a minor Roman God, and I love this God. And unfortunately, I can't find his name. It slipped my mind. I looked on the internet and couldn't find him, but he, but he exists. I didn't make this up. And this God would come at you. You look at him coming towards you, and he was old and he was lame and he was halt he was limping he had a cane and just barely shuffling his feet along it just took forever to get to you and then finally when he gets to you and he passes you and you look at him he sprouts wings and zoom flies off into the atmosphere and he's gone so fast don't even have time to tell him goodbye the uncertainty of wealth folks and boy i'm gonna tell you it's the truth <laughs> Look at your 401k in 2008 or after the coronavirus. Ooh, bye-bye. But Paul says don't worry about the uncertainty of wealth because God richly provides us with all things to enjoy. God will give you material things. See, that's why material things are not a sin because God would not richly provide you with something that's sinful, would he? 
He richly provides you with all things to enjoy. He'll give you your financial needs if you trust him. Now, folks, I, I have denounced the faith and prosperity message so many times in my videos, excuse me, in my audios, in my videos too, for that matter. I hate the health and wealth prosperity gospel. I despise it with every bone, with every molecule, with every tendon of my body. But I do not think that it's proper to react against those erroneous teachers by saying that I want to preach a gospel of poverty. Because, folks, this verse right here disproves it. God richly provides us with all things to enjoy. And people who are in poor countries especially, they need to know that God's going to take care of them. Because there ain't nothing worse than poverty. Nothing. Well, I guess there is. I guess being sick. But being you read watch, read all these watch all these videos about poor people. I saw one about Nike was using basically not slave labor but pretty close to slave labor, and this Jesuit professor he was a soccer coach. He goes over and try and takes a job in Nike's factories over there in some Asian country. I forgot where it was, and he takes another young woman with him uh, to to do the research on this and. The living conditions were so bad, it almost made you want to throw up to think that people could live like that and even survive. Poverty is terrible. God does not want us to live in poverty. We do not need to react against the faith people, the the, the hyper-prosperity people, the people living in $23 million mansions. We don't need to react against them and say, oh, poverty is good for us. Like the Middle Ages, like Francis of Assisi did. He's told everybody, give away your wealth because it's a hindrance to spirituality. Well, it is a hindrance to spirituality, no question about it. But the answer is not to give it all away. Francis of Assisi did, and guess what happened? People were so impressed by him, they started giving money to the Franciscan order until pretty soon it was one of the richest orders in medieval Christendom. In fact, pretty soon the order split into the spiritual Franciscans, those who were, stay true to the original vision of the founder and give all the money away, and the ordinary Franciscans who were loaded to the gills. It just doesn't work, folks. And besides, if you think money is evil, then try, what about your next meal? It takes money to buy it. Don't you think food is sort of good to have food and shelter? Paul said, with food and shelter, we'll be content in another place. With food and shelter, we'll be content. Well, guess what? It takes money to buy food and shelter, so money in itself is not sinful. But putting your hope on it is certainly is sinful. Paul goes in verse 18 and struck down the rich people to do what is good to be rich in good works. So there's your answer is don't give it all away, but to be rich in good works. Be generous. Be willing to share. Don't hold on to your money. Storing up for themselves a good reserve for the age to come so they may take hold of life that is real. I'm assuming age to come is the heaven. You sow spiritual, you sow physical things, material things in this life and in the age to come in heaven you'll get spiritual wealth. Now, age to come sometimes means referring to the age after the after the pre-Messianic age, the Old Testament era, and the age to come will be the, the New Testament era. But here, I believe that Paul's talking about the age to come, talking about the final state, because he's already in the Messianic age, and he's talking about what comes after the Messianic age, which sounds like heaven to me. And, of course, that's the way most people take it. Now, let's finish up our discussion of verses 17 through 19 to talk about bad stuff that happens for people who put their hope on the uncertainty of wealth. Matthew 6, 19-21, Jesus says, Don't collect for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. The treasures were held in the form of cloth back then, fancy cloth and moth and rust 
wood destroy cloth that doesn't mean iron rust but that what do you call it mold of some sort that those animals that get in clothes and rip them up don't store your wealth there 20 but collect for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves don't break in and steal for where your treasure is there your heart will be also don't put your heart on money in this life Matthew 13:22 Now the one sown among the thorns this is the one who hears the word but the words of this age and the seduction of wealth you know choke the word I remember one time I got a friend of mine wanted me to get involved in some IPOs and so we got all excited about this stuff how well, we were going to get rich and I have never seen such grief in my life such horrible things that were said and the golem like entrepreneurs are trying to get wealth trying to get rich one of them ended up in jail he just got out spent five years in the federal penitentiary and i thought you know i ain't dealing with this crap anymore oh sorry in fact after it happened i was i went to china and i said i'm not going to look at the dow jones industrial average and i didn't look at it for five years while i taught maybe more than five years at least five years while i was in china teaching and i said i'm just going to worry about spreading the gospel in china and i just didn't go worry about it and in fact sometimes i felt like it was irresponsible because i got my old age to worry about i got a wife to worry about i got an aged mother to worry about but i just said no i'm just going to work and let god take care of it. and he did he has there's no question about it so but that's that wealth can be very seductive having been there and seen and been tempted by it it almost got me so especially for americans who have all kinds of financial opportunities you got to be careful You've got to be real careful. Matthew 19, 22-24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, I assure you it will be hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, as he said it was hard. He didn't say it was impossible. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. But, of course, with God, all things are possible. A rich person can squeeze through that eye of a needle and thank God for it. There have been a lot of good rich people. John D. Rockefeller, for example. Letourneau, who gave away 90% of his income. He made a fortune with heavy earth-moving equipment. Nothing wrong with rich businessmen as long as you don't set your hope on money. But you've got a special duty when you have a lot of money because then you have a temptation that most people don't have. James 1, 9 through 11, the brother of hum humble circumstances should boast in his exaltation, but the one who is rich should boast in his humiliation because he will pass away like a flower of the field. Reminds me of the guy that started North Face, that company that that does the arctic jackets and the outdoor equipment and it got to be a very big brand name you see young millennial type people everywhere wearing this these clothes north face and he's kayaking somewhere off the coast of south america i believe he's in his 40s multi multi multi-millionaire boom he's gone i don't know what happened but he drowned it's just sort of it's terrible when you see stuff like that but you don't i don't care how rich you are you're just like a flower in the field and just like that woof, you could be plucked the sun rises with its scorching heat and dries up the grass. Its flower falls off, and its beautiful appearance is destroyed. In the same way, the rich man will wither away while pursuing his activities. Of course, this is assuming by the assuming it's the ungodly rich here. James 5, 1 through 6. Again, ungodly rich being referred to. Come now, you rich people. Weep and wail over the miseries that are coming on you. Your wealth is ruined and your clothes are moth-eaten. Your silver and gold are corroded and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You stored up treasure in the last days. <laughs> Wrong kind of treasure. 
Look, the pay that you withheld from the workers who reaped your fields cried out, and the outcry of the harvesters has reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived luxuriously on the land and have indulged yourselves. You have fattened your hearts for the day of slaughter. You have condemned, you have murdered the righteous man. He does not resist you. Now, of course, this is talking about evil rich people. I just saw a movie last night about a former Olympic quality skier. She didn't make the Olympics, but she was good enough. She was up there in the near the top, and she got injured, and she ended up running poker games for rich people in Los Angeles, uh, movie stars, politicians, and such. And she, it was, she was very smart woman and very bold and she ended up making a fortune doing that until the players took the game away from her twice she lost the game in los angeles she she, she goes it's called molly's games is the movie she went to new york and then she got a bunch of rich people and unfortunately she had to stay up she started chasing money and she couldn't stay awake so she started taking drugs about 10 or 15 type of drugs just trying to stay awake trying to keep up with this stuff and she didn't want to use muscle men to collect debts that were owed to her by these people who were losing hundreds of thousands of dollars sometimes and so and she was and then she quit vetting her customers and pretty soon she accidentally allowed four russian mafia people in and the long and short of it is she got beat up by a mafia guy and then she got arrested by the FBI. They took all of her money. She lost everything. And now she was 26 at the time. She's now 42 years old. She doesn't have any money. She's still bankrupt because she owed the government millions of dollars, I think it was. I don't know. The numbers got to be so bad. It was just terrible. And I thought, oh, my gosh, girl, the love of money has ruined you, ruined you. And she's not a Christian by any means, which is really sad. She's not, and she always wanted a husband and kids. She never, 42 years, old, 42 years old, still not married. Who's going to marry somebody that's a million dollars in debt, <laughs> millions of dollars in debt? I mean, the federal government, after they took our money, then they charged the taxes on the money they took. That's, that's the government for you. We go now to verses 20 and 21. We'll finish up the chapter in the book. Timothy, Paul says, guard what has been entrusted to you, avoiding irreverent, empty speech and contradictions from the quote-unquote knowledge that falsely bears that name. By professing it, some people have deviated from the faith. Grace be with all of you. One thing I like about the Holman Christian Study Bible, they like to use air quotes. For example, one time, mystery, I think, is put in air quotes to show that Paul wasn't referring to the term mystery in the sense that it's normally referred to. It's an ironic use of the word. Well, here, it's so-called knowledge. If you put quotes around it, that means that's what people are saying is knowledge, but it's not really knowledge. And, of course, he's referring to the Gnostic heresies where you got to know the secret mysteries to climb through the angelic hierarchies in order to get to the demiurge and all this, and in order to get that spark of divinity that's enclosed in your sinful fleshly body. you got to get that good spark of divinity out and climb through the hierarchies and all this nonsense. And Then you can't eat pork, you can't eat shrimp, and you got to wash your right thumb right before you wash your left thumb. And all this nonsense, legalistic and Gnostic nonsense, Paul calls it irreverent, empty speech, and contradictions. None of it even fits together coherently or cogently. It's nonsense. And so Paul is telling Timothy to guard what has been trusted to you. That would probably be the gospel. I'm sure it's the gospel, as John Gill says. All the truths about the gospel that Paul's told Timothy, he's saying, Timothy, guard yourself. Don't lose it. And you think, well, how could Timothy be stupid enough to fall for this stuff? I want to tell you something. Heresy is seductive. A heresy is as seductive as a half-naked woman. I'm telling you, 
I have seen people be seduced by false doctrine in several instances in which and the results were, ca- were catastrophic. And so I'm sure Paul is concerned about it. He says, Timothy, don't be seduced. Verse 21, by professing it, this vain, quote-unquote, air-quote knowledge, by professing this knowledge, some people have deviated from the faith. Grace be with all of you. Now, that means deviated from the Christian faith. It doesn't mean they lost their salvation. It means they've just deviated from the true doctrines of the gospel. Lots of Christians have deviated from the faith, folks. I've done it. You've done it. Everybody's done it. Some people have deviated more than others. It doesn't mean they've lost the salvation. But these people, apparently, Paul is referring not just to the false teachers who are teaching it who never were saved. He's talking about people who were saved and got seduced and started deviating from the faith. And Paul doesn't want that to happen to Timothy. He finishes up by saying, grace be with all of you. You might ask, well, why is Paul saying all of you when he's writing one person, Timothy? Reminds me how in these old Hollywood movies, they got some southerner in, in the movie. And, of course, the southerner is not really a southerner. He's a Hollywood actor. And he looks at an, an, at an individual person. He says, how y'all doing? And, I, and it makes my skin crawl. Nobody. And y'all is plural. How do you say a plural pronoun to talk to a single person? It's stupid. And they do it over and over and over again. Well, Paul is talking about to Timothy, but he knows that the letter is going to be distributed through the churches. And so he's addressing to all the potential hearers of the letter as it's read aloud to everybody. That's why he says, grace be to all of you. Ladies and gentlemen, I have finished 1 Timothy, the whole book of 1 Timothy. I finished chapter 6 as well as the whole book. And in our next audio, we're going to take up 2 Timothy. I hope you stay tuned for that audio. And I hope you enjoyed this one. 